welcome to episode 153 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Nothing? You got nothing for me? <laughs> Just leave me hey, hanging brother. there? Just going to leave me hanging there like that? I didn't hear it. Did you say something? I did. I said, hey, brother. And you were like, oh, it, it must have cut out. Sorry, that would, that made me seem like I was just super rude and just bobbed <laughs> my head. I was waiting for the beginning of all this. It's all good. It's all good in the hood. How you doing, man? I'm doing all right. What's what's good with you, Tony? What is new that's happening in your world? Uh, today is our seventh wedding anniversary, so that's exciting. Uh, we've been married it for is? seven years. Yeah, congratulations. Yep, we uh, congratulations. Still, still feel like newlyweds sometimes. It's kind of hard to believe that it's been more than half a decade that we've been married. But life's good. Marriage is good. Church is good. Everything's good. Yeah, thank you for taking away my affirmation. But I'll just oh, go to plan B. <laughs> That's okay. I wanted to affirm your marriage. I'm so glad that you're part of my family by way of marrying in, by marrying my sister. But again, just loving that we're also brothers in Christ, which is yeah. part of what started this whole epic journey to begin with. So It's true. I'm going to I'm going to affirm that, but I'll come in with something else when the time comes. Okay, well I think the time has come. Do you want me to go first to give you a little time? Has it come? Yeah, it go has. ahead. So I'm affirming a podcast called the Average Everyday Worship Leader Podcast. And have you ever heard of this podcast? I have heard of this. So it's not a reformed podcast, so there's a strike against it. But uh, it, it is a good show with a really kind of funny, engaging host uh, who's a worship leader. And he talks about just kind of... Um, general kind of stuff having to do with leading worship uh, and specifically musical worship in the church. And what I think is really cool about this show is that he uh, is intentional to kind of mentor the people who reach out to him in terms of his listeners. Um, so he has a Facebook group. They are very active in the group. They talk about like what songs they're going to sing. Um, they sometimes will post their set lists or their worship uh, liturgy lists uh, and kind of do feedback cycles. So it's it's more than just a podcast. Uh, there's also kind of a community of worship leaders who've grown up around it. Uh, and I just think it's a cool sort of little show. Yeah, I like this podcast because just like so many other things in life and especially so many other things in like vocational ministry or volunteer ministry, it's easy to think that the stuff that you have to contend with or thinking through or trying to do is unique to yourself. Yeah. So when you get to listen to somebody really try to process and kind of explain how they go through the process of planning music, right. it makes you realize, oh, good, I'm not the only one. And I love this podcast because it's often given me new ideas to kind of bring yeah. some freshness into the liturgy. And so I just respect that it is a community of people that are like-minded that are getting together. So it's, it's a great way to kind of spur a little bit of creativity and also to identify with others who are in a similar type of ministry. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? Did you come up with an alternate affirmation yet? Yes. So I want to, I want to affirm the first and primary affirmation and that is that happy wedding anniversary. I can't seriously, I can't believe you've been married seven years. Like that makes me feel super old. It's, it's crazy. It, it, it feels like, uh, it went by so quick, but on another level, it almost, it feels like we've been married. Like this is so normal. Life is so normal as a married couple. So it kind of feels like this is the way it's always been, but it's kind of surreal, actually. 
that's a testimony to a good marriage right there. Yep. This yep. feels like it's always been this way. Yeah, not like just, in a bad sense. Yeah, it's just <laughs> this is normal. Like this is how life is supposed to be. So it's great. Yeah. I love marriage. So as like a secondary and much lesser affirmation, I'm also going to affirm something that is audio. And I want to give you the opportunity to get on the ground floor of something that's <laughs> going to be absolutely awesome. And I've recommended a lot of music on this podcast, and it may seem like I'm just out there trying to find music to affirm, but this year, for whatever reason, there's just been so much new music that's come out that it's just kind of fallen into my lap. And so here's an example of something else that's just was just released. So this is ground level because now you can get in on loving this band when they released their first project before they're like super cool. So there's a, a relatively new group called Empty that's on Solid State Records that just released an album called Hope and the Loss of It. And I've been listening to this like nonstop for the past week. It's, it's just fantastic. It's really amazing music. It is post-hardcore. So that does mean there is some wonderful screaming in it, but it's also very melodic. And the music is actually really diverse. There are several songs where if I played them for probably the average person, they'd say, oh yeah. Like if I played them for my wife, she'd say, oh yeah, I can handle that until probably like the bridge. But that being said... <laughs> It's a great album, so Hope and the Loss of It by Empty on Solid State Records. Again, everybody, get on the ground floor in this. You can be that person that says, oh, I listened to Empty when they weren't super popular and they weren't you know, super cool yet. You I mean, mean, they're super cool now, but... You mean like a hipster? Yeah. <laughs> you can yes. be a hipster. A screamo <laughs> hipster. You too can be a hipster. Just listen yes. to Empty. So I'm, I'm really curious, though, for what you're denying this week. So uh, just as much as I affirmed the Average Everyday Worship Leader podcast, I am denying Todd, who is the host of the Average Everyday Worship Leader podcast. So my wife, Ashley, is an avid listener of this show. She frequently calls into the show. She frequently posts in the Facebook group. She's very active. And a couple episodes ago, he was talking about Ashley and he said something about her being a Vermonter, which is, it, yeah, like, ooh. So, so we live in New Hampshire and, you know, every state has usually a bordering state that is their rival. So, like, there's, you know, Minnesota-Wisconsin rivalry. There's, you know, like Alabama-Mississippi. There's those rivalries. But of all of the places that I've had experience, the Vermont-New Hampshire rivalry is a lot more intense than most. So I called in. I called in. I sent in a voicemail to Todd. It was very straightforward, very clear, explaining to him that he wounded my wife deeply when he said the wrong state, that he might as well have just stabbed her right in the heart. And he just continued. The next week, he referenced my voicemail, and he said something about hard Vermont winters. So... I mean, if he wants to throw down on a podcast war, I think we could probably make that happen. Oh, this is great. Let's draw the lines right here. The thing is, people are not, for the most part, going to understand exactly what you're talking about. But I would encourage everybody who's listening, who's like, what is the big deal? Think about whatever rivalry exists in your life, whether that's where you went to school and the rivalry of the school that you went to, or again, if you have a, some kind of like equivalent with the state, this is a super big deal because for a period of time, I worked in New Hampshire on the border, actually not far from where you work. Right. And I was doing financial advising. And one of the things I learned very quickly is you just don't want to guess that wrong. If you say to somebody that, that you presume they're from Vermont and they're from New Hampshire or even vice versa, 
you were, I was likely not to get any business. That's actually how strong yeah. this was. Yeah. So like you never want to presume where somebody was from. And partly that's because the states are like super different in their philosophy and their ideologies yeah. and their history. So, you know, cause New Hampshire is like the live for your die state, and, and Vermont tends to be a lot more liberal. So you just don't want to guess that wrong. So this is a real thing. The struggle on that is real. So I'm yeah. with you. I would not want anybody to say, Oh, you're from Vermont originally. I would say you kiss your mother with that mouth. <laughs> I, I, would, I would definitely not be, I would definitely not take that lightly. Yeah. I mean, so like just to give a little example of the difference between the two in New Hampshire, there was a proposal at one point that New Hampshire uh, residents may somehow need to pay sales tax if they bought something out of state. And our governor was like, nope, we're never we're never working with that state again. Get out of our <laughs> get out of our state. And then Vermont is the home of Bernie Sanders. So it's like it's like the the least taxed uh, state in the country and like one of the most taxed state in the country. And I, I literally live like 30 minutes from the border. I've had uh, patients at the hospital who complained to me because my secretary accidentally said the wrong state when they were verifying an address. <laughs> so it's it's not it's it's not a small deal, Todd. It's not a small deal. So I know that you're joking. I know that you think this is funny, but I'm coming for you because it's not a joke. Yes, I have a message for Todd. Todd, how dare you, sir? How dare you, how Todd? How dare you? How dare you? All yeah, right. it's, it's definitely a big deal. So it I'm is. with you on that. So other than Vermont, what are you denying? So my denial is is not quite as weighty as yours, but that, that seems to be our pattern. So <laughs> I don't know if you actually have this in New Hampshire. This is There's a strange phenomenon in our grocery stores where they've implemented a new piece of technology. So of course they moved in the grocery store from the person who was checking you out to the self checkout. And that's convenient most of the time, but they've introduced a robot. Do you have this in your grocery stores yet? A robot? Yes. So I'm going to send it to you while I, while I speak of this thing in, in our little chat here, but basically they've introduced a robot. His name is Marty. And to describe this, he's like a, he has wheels and he has a, a kind of wide base and a very narrow body. And he's probably about six feet tall. They, they slap giant googly eyes on him, I think, to make him seem more presentable or at least more comedic. But his job is he just drives around the grocery store and he tries to alert the other employees when there is some kind of like potential safety hazard, like a spill of liquid or something on the floor. And he makes a little noise. He has sensors so he doesn't run into people. But he's super creepy and there have been several times where actually this happens to me a lot in the dairy aisle and for whatever reason i'm usually like looking very in a concentrated manner at yogurt and i turn around and marty is right there like right in my face and it's really really freaky did you get the link that i sent yeah he looks like a weird cross between a roomba and gumby and gumby <laughs> gumby freaks me out description does he melt through walls like That's gumby description. does no, so I mean maybe I don't, this could be like a Terminator thing. I have no idea. So this he just drives around. He makes this kind of like incessant beeping noise, so like you're aware that he's there. But it's, it's a kind of fairly creepy technology. And when I look this up online, uh, there's a lot of strong responses to this. So I guess I'm kind of denying against it only because in an effort to make him seem more relational with these like giant googly eyes they slapped on him, because that's not necessarily necessary. 
it's yeah. made him more creepy to me. And I wasn't sure if you, this is other people in the country have got to be experiencing this. I think it's probably a common thing now. It's some type of you know technology that's being rolled out in all kinds of grocery stores. But I was more curious to see if you've ever experienced this before, but it sounds like not yet. No, we are safe from the robot overlords. Um, <laughs> you know, I know that you're not a Doctor Who fan, but if you were a Doctor Who fan, you would look at this and immediately think that this looks like a, a Dalek, which is like the big evil robots from the show. And like, if you like cover up his googly eyes and look down towards the base, he's got this like red sensor eye and he looks like a mean robot. He just looks mean. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. There was actually an article in one of our local papers, and I think this was tongue in cheek, although I, I honestly couldn't tell. That some woman was filing a complaint with the grocery store that she had been sexually harassed by Marty yeah. in some way, <laughs> which maybe that that did happen. He's, he, I mean, he looks like he's a suspicious character anyway. I mean, with so, googly eyes also, like that, it's not a surprise. Ah, uh, that's actually pretty clever. Everybody should look this up. If you just type in like Marty grocery store robot. Also, I'm a little bit disturbed by the use of the word or name Marty for him. I also wonder why they don't just if they, I mean if they're going to make a robot, why don't they just go all the way and make a robot that can just clean up the spill? <laughs> yes, I've thought about that like, too. Like it seems like this is a Roomba <laughs> with really advanced sensors, but why not just get a Roomba? Right. Like Roombas can right. clean up liquid spills. <laughs> seems seems unnecessary. Again. I thought you were going to say that it's a robot that helps check you out like at the register, and I was like this is how this is how Terminator starts. Yes. The robots well, are coming again, for us, and I hope that they go after Todd first. <laughs> We're going to send Todd. Mighty's coming for you. He he's won't do anything. He'll he's just gonna, stare you down. He's going to clean up that spill. Boom. Boom. Well, I think, if I'm not mistaken, that is the perfect segue. <laughs> into what we're talking about today. Yes. I'm not uh, sure how, is, but I'm sure that it is. Oh, it's perfect. I, I don't even think, I, I think if we were to try to explain why it's perfect right now, people would be like, yeah, yeah, we get it already. I don't, yeah. we, we don't need to go there. It's no. so good. Um, but we're back in Bookcast. Here's another episode of the Bookcast. And Sweet. I want to reiterate, it's not too late to join us in the reading of Reformed Preaching by Dr. Joel Beakey. Because we're just, we're just in chapter nine. And we're taking our sweet time to go through the book because we're, we're sucking the marrow out of this thing. We're enjoying it, relishing it, we're metabolizing it. And so we're on the chapter now where we're getting into Puritan preachers. And I am super stoked because, like we talked about in the last bookcast, I feel like the Puritans sometimes get a bum rap. And that's just because people don't even understand them. There's a lot of ignorance with the Puritans, myself yeah. included in that mix. So it was great to read this first chapter, chapter nine on the Puritans, about William Perkins, who, as we were talking before we record, recorded, like he's kind of our boy. Like I think yeah. I kind of fanboyed a little bit in this chapter. Yeah, I mean William Perkins is one of those uh, figures that's so understated and overshadowed, but he really is uh, so much more central to the reformed movement as a whole than I think than I think nearly anybody recognizes. So this might come as a shock to some people. But like if Jonathan Edwards just fell off the map, then reform theology would not be all that different than it is. Like Jonathan Edwards sure. is a good example of a figure who is reformed, who had influence because of his historical context. But in terms of actually developing reform theology, 
he, he's really not all that influential. However, William Perkins is the father of Puritanism. So there are, there are right. some people that come before him that you could consider Puritans, but in terms of actually like fostering and spawning a movement, William Perkins really is it because he, he's the one that developed kind of the Puritan method of preaching. And he's the one that sort of spread that into the academy and into the seminary for the next generation of preachers in England and then into the Americas to really bring into their mindset and to shape their preaching after probably for at least three or four generations of preachers, William Perkins was like the gold standard. So I don't think yes. you can underemphasize how important he is. You know, we talked about in the last chapter about Puritan preaching sort of generically, how the, the fact is that for Puritans, preaching was the vehicle that God used to accomplish everything he was doing in England. Whether it was personal right. transformation, cultural transformation, church reformation, political changes, everything that was being done in and by the Puritans, they sought to do it through the act of preaching. And that's how they worked. And William Perkins really is the one who sort of architected the model of preaching that that, that really gave that shape and form. And I would argue that gave it its power because Perkins model is basically just preach the scriptures, right? Just teach what the scriptures right. do plainly and simply and consistently, and that will change lives. And I mean, that's so simple and straightforward, but all at the same time, it was also so revolutionary. Yeah. In fact, of Perkins, Beaky says he was the bridge between the Genevan reform thought of John Calvin and Theodore Beza, who we mm -hmm. talked about. And like the English, and I would extend that to like the American Puritans who followed him. Right. So just to give like some sense of like really his influence, even in his own life, at the time of his death, Beaky notes that Perkins' writings in England were outselling those of Calvin, Beza, and Bullinger combined. Yeah. So even in his own lifetime, there was recognition that what he was doing by way of, I like what you said, kind of the grand architect of this Puritan style, that this had a heavy influence on the church at the time. And I would say like, you know, subsequent his death, even still persists. Like people quote his writing all the time. We've talked about the art of prophesying, which is one of yeah. his most famous works in terms of an actual text for how to approach the scriptures through preaching that continues to impact people's lives. That, that continues to be almost like an eternal contemporary when it comes to trying to build the proper rubric in which to approach the scriptures by way of preaching. And what I think is really great about this chapter is I think there's sometimes when we pick up a book like this, there's wonderful anecdotes that we can learn about people. And what Beaky does a really good job at is thrusting us in, not just to these anecdotes, but into the person themselves and their convictions and the theology which is born out of their preaching. And so one of the things that I found really great is that this, this emphasis that Perkins had and which Beaky draws out of the centrality of sovereign grace yeah. in preaching. And this is where I think there's a lot for us to learn in the modern context, because Perkins believed that a biblical understanding of God's sovereign grace in predestination is vital for spiritual comfort and assurance. Yeah. And so predestination is the hope, it's the expectation, it's the guarantee of salvation for, for the true believer. And oftentimes, Reformed theology, as you know, gets caricaturized in such a way that really the worst thing about it is the sovereign grace of God right. manifested in predestination. And here you have, I think rightly from the beginning, most of his ministry, you have Perkins emphasizing that we, we got that twisted, that predestination is actually the greatest act of God's love and spiritual comfort. Right. Yeah. And one thing before we really launch too far into actually talking about the chapter, um, that for one reason or another, Dr. Beaky doesn't bring out 
is, um, you know, Jacob Arminius in a lot of ways was kind of a problem created by Theodore Beza, right? Arminius studied under Beza. Um, in, right. in a lot of ways, Arminius was responding to what many, myself included, would call sort of an overemphasis in Beza's part on superlapsarianism. Um, Beza takes what Calvin taught and he sort of kicks it up a notch into a place that I think probably goes a little too far. And so Arminius is a negative reaction to what I think was a mistake that Beza made in his theology. And so in a lot of ways, Perkins then comes along and becomes uh, Arminius's primary opponent in the whole discussion. So Arminius, you know, we think about Calvin versus Arminius, but they would not have had any, if if at all, any interaction with each other. And Beza, once Arminius kind of goes off on his own direction, Beza doesn't interact with Arminius directly much at all. But uh, because of the culture and the context with some of the political things going on, Perkins was actually in a much better position to have that head-to-head conflict with Arminius. And he really takes him to task in a lot of ways. And so Perkins, as a reformed Calvinistic thinker, really is the person who approaches and addresses Arminian theology in England. And so in a very real sense, the fact that Arminian theology never really took hold in England in terms of Arminius proper and the Arminian remonstrance, the reason it never took foothold there is largely because of the work and influence of William Perkins. So you can't underemphasize theologically enough how much the, the Presbyterian Calvinist tradition and then obviously the Reformed Baptist tradition, which grows out of it, how much we, and I would say we, like you and I represent in, in our own ways that British, Presbyterian, and Baptist tradition. And we really Absolutely. owe a debt of gratitude to William Perkins for standing up against that and doing so so clearly and specifically and articulately that there really was no chance for Arminianism to become a thing in uh, the British Isles, um, or in Scotland for that matter. So it, he, his role in the, the development and defense of Reformed theology in the Reformation and the Second Reformation or the Dutch Reformation really can't be under over uh, overemphasized. And that partly goes back to what you've already stated about really Perkins' commitment to preaching the scriptures, which right. w- has been a theme, of course, that we repeated several times. We've gone through these different examples, but here you see it in action, and that is he's properly exegeting the scriptures and explaining the purpose and the role of predestination in a way that is, I think, foreign to some listeners because that seems to be a pejorative word these days. It needs to be absent love and graciousness and mercy and kindness, unless you have really grown up in the Reformed tradition or maybe you've just invested some time in studying what it actually represents in that particular stream of theological thought. And so what I want to kind of get into is because not not only do we have like a great man who's a great preacher and has great skill set to that effect, but there's something interesting about Perkins in this way because he held, as you already said, like this superlapsarian doctrine of double predestination. So I want to get into this a little bit with you because I think this is really fascinating. And here's why we look at these men who are great preachers. It's how they understand the scriptures and bring that into their lives by way of practical submission to it in their behavior. And so for anybody, like for just a quick, let me throw out like a quick definition or what I would call like a quick definition of superlapsarianism in case that word just like straight smacks some people across the face. So like, what the heck is that? So superlapsarianism, especially as I think, as I'm going to say, like Perkins would have subscribed to it, is this view that God, contemplating man as yet unfallen, chose some to receive eternal life and rejected all others. So right. a superlapsarian would say that the reprobate, the non-elect vessels of wrath, 
that are fitted for destruction that we get from Romans 9 were first ordained to that role and that the means by which they fell into sin was ordained. So in other words, superlapsarianism suggests that God's decree of election logically preceded his decree to permit Adam's fall so that their damnation is first of all an act of divine sovereignty and only secondarily an act of divine justice. Right. And I want to throw all that out there because I want to get your sense like, what do you think of how Perkins is using that and expressing this doctrine as something that is a spiritual comfort and a source of assurance? Like, why is it important that that was the, the center of a lot of his ministry? Yeah, I mean, you and I have been uh, pretty clear on what we think about superlapsarianism and some of the logical consequences. But right. what Perkins is strong in, I think that someone like, uh, I think Beza in my reading of him is, is weak in, is he really does try to stick close to the scriptures, especially in his preaching. So where sometimes the... Um, the superlapsarianism of Beza and, and some of those following him in Geneva can get a little bit more speculative and sometimes can abstract itself from the biblical witness. The superlapsarianism of Perkins, even though I think in the long run it still kind of comes to the same place where God is sort of arbitrarily choosing um, some where, where his act in election and his act in reprobation, that those are actually equally ultimate. I think that Perkins kind of ends in the same place. Um, but Perkins does have this sort of unique feature in his superlapsarianism where predestination is always in Christ. And so right. even though I think logically he probably ends in the same place where there's that equal ultimacy, because his election is in Christ specifically and his reprobation is not in Christ, obviously, then there is a distinction and a difference in the, the, the act of God in electing and reprobating that I think helps to hedge him a little bit. So I think that he's able because he's so Christocentric in his doctrine of election, he's able to bring forward this superlapsarianism that is um, is technically articulate, but is also winsome. And he's able to bring that yes. forward to those that he's preaching to, to say genuinely, if you are in Christ, then in a certain sense, not in a, not in like an eternal justification sense, but in a certain sense, you've always been in Christ. And for those who are elect, I mean, that's, that's true, whether you're a superlapsarian or a, an infralapsarian, but the fact that he brings that forward, I think is why his doctrine can be so much comfort to those who are at times questioning their salvation is because they recognize that if you're in, if you're in the sun, then you're in the sun and you've always been in the sun. And not only can nothing snatch you out of his hand, but nothing could have ever prevented you from ta from him taking hold of you. So I think that's where his theology right. becomes really pastoral and really strong. Yeah, and it's great because he's, I think, appropriately drawing out what a source of love that is for God. This goes back to something we've quoted before, Ephesians 1.5. We often forget the preposition that precedes that verse, which is, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Right. So he's appropriately hitting on the fact that the scriptures make it clear that predestination isn't just this matter of God arbitrarily choosing. I, like you said, I think there's good balance in what he's bringing in terms of how he's applying this scripture. But it's also an act of the, the, the highest act of love and mercy. And he, what I love about him is he doesn't shy away from these things. So a lot of his preaching was focused on or came out of that superlapsarian view. But he also embraced double predestination. And right. I think for the most part, when you say double predestination, like that fires a lot of people up. Because for the Reformed people, they interpret that as 
uh, as a caricature of what they believe. And for those that are Arminian or perhaps of other theological persuasion, they view that as, well, this is exactly the thing that's wrong with Calvinism in right. the Reformed tradition, is that you're saying God actively chooses to send some people and make them reprobate, send them to hell, and he actively chooses to save others, even if we're saying in Christ. Right. And so like in sharp contrast to that caricature of the double predestination that's seen in that positive, positive schema, you have, I think, with Perkins, this more classic position of Reformed theology on predestination and double predestination. So under Perkins, what you get, and this is why he's just so great, so articulate about this, is predestination is double in that it involves both election and reprobation, but it's not symmetrical with respect to right. the mode of divine activity. I think that's like the critical thing we as Reformed people need to be able to express to people when they bring that argument against this. Because a strict parallelism of operation is absolutely denied when we say that. Right. So instead, we, we view predestination in terms of a positive-negative relationship. So what Perkins brings forward is this view that God from all eternity decrees some to election, and positively intervenes in their lives to work regeneration and faith by a monergistic work of grace. And to the non-elect, God withholds this monergistic work of grace, passing them by and leaving them to themselves. So he's, he's not like monergistically working sin or unbelief into their lives. And that's often where this argument distends into because what happens is people bring this caricature against it. And Perkins did such a great job of, I think, clarifying that and bringing it into this light and sphere of how we live and understand God to work. Right. And and this is part of why it's important to recognize sort of his position in the sequence of development, because Sebeza comes forward and he really does, in some of his writing, seem to express this, this idea of equal ultimacy, where the act of God in election is identical to the act of, of God in reprobation, in that he is arbitrarily arbitrarily choosing uh, destinies for people irrespective of their sin or their their you know futures. Um, Arminius responds strongly to that, and and you know for all it's worth, Arminius was a genius. Like Arminius was not a dumb guy. He was a crisp scholar. Right. He understood for the most part what Beza was saying, and he uh, he brought forward a critique that basically says, well that that makes God. Um, his act in reprobating the same as his act in electing. And so Arminius in responding to that critique of Bayes' theology by Arminius, he develops this uh, asymmetrical um, predestination model where the elect are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, right? Right out of Ephesians one and two, they're chosen in Christ and God's act in electing them is active where his act in in reprobating, we, sh we can't say that it's passive because God God is pure act. Everything he does is a positive act. But his act right. in reprobating is different than his act in electing because his choice in reprobating is to not make provision for that person to have eternal life through Christ. Now, where I think it gets a little inconsistent at times is that there's no good reason for the reprobate person to not to even need Christ apart from a view of sin. And we talked about that. We did an episode on uh, the article, uh, the Ordo Salutis, and we also did one specifically on superlapsarianism and infralapsarianism. And, and in those uh, episodes, we made the argument that God must be arbitrarily electing if he's not considering sin. And a lot of the most common right. models of superlapsarianism 
actually do incorporate somehow that God is is uh, electing sinners for salvation, which we argued was just logically inconsistent. But Perkins really does bring forward this concept that anything that God gives to the to the created order, anything that God positively gives to them as a blessing comes through Christ. And the most supreme thing that he gives that is evident in that is salvation or redemption or unity with Christ itself. Right. And, and I think we should think about what all of that means, practically speaking. And this is what Beaky does a really good job at in commenting about Perkins. Because he notes that Perkins believed that predestination was the means by which God manifested the glory of the Godhead outside of himself to the human race. Yeah. And I thought that to be a very profound statement because if that is true, then the other question we should ask are, what are the implications for mitigating, eroding, or otherwise subtly diminishing God's autonomous decision-making in predestination? Because if that statement is true, that this is the way in which God is outside of himself demonstrating his glory and power to the human race, when we take that away, what are we doing not only to the glory of God, but yeah. to how we understand his character to be? I think this is why it was so important to Perkins is because he saw this as a means by which God was demonstrating that he is all powerful. And when you think about it, is there anything almost, is there anything actually that demonstrates the power of God, like God's ability to essentially decide the eternal destiny or fate of any single human person. I mean, I don't think there is. I, mean, I think we could even argue that compared to that, even his ability to affect all of creation, every molecule of the natural world outside of human ability and reality, that pales in comparison because yeah. this is what people get so offended about is that God would be able to choose on his own outside of my own volition and will allegedly to cast my eternal destiny. That is the most offensive thing. And so it just strikes me as here we have Perkins saying, no, you, you misunderstand. This is, this is how God is primarily demonstrating his glory. And we so easily want to take that away. Yeah. I mean, I think um, when you look at Perkins theology and just reform theology as a whole, you know, there's, there's a school of thought that wants to say that every theological system has sort of this like central defining and arranging or ordering principle. And there's some strength to that. It's not, it doesn't work in all circumstances, but there's some strength to that, to that idea. And the common critique of reformed theology is that it makes predestination the central unifying theme or the central dogma of the religion. But in point of fact, it's not predestination. It's the supremacy and glory of God that right is on. the central feature of reformed theology. And, and Arminianism looks at that and what, what happens, and this, this quote that you pulled out here um, from Beaky, which is on page 161, I'm going to read it again. It says, Perkins believe that predestination is the means by which God manifests the glory of the Godhead outside of himself to the human race. So if we hold as we do that the glory of God is the supreme reality and that all other reality is arranged in order around it, it should not be a surprise then that when we point to the glory of God and we try to point to what it is that God does in creation to, to magnify and to emphasize his glory, it is his sovereign choice of who will 
will be his people and who will not be his people. Right. So, so you and I, we have a sovereignty in our lives to decide who we wish to associate with. If I don't like my job, I can quit my job. If I don't like uh, the person who lives next to me, I can move somewhere else. I have the freedom to determine in a certain sense who will be my people. Who will be the people that I associate with? And so as as Reformed Christians, really all we're saying when we talk about God's glory and, and predestination as it relates to that is that God has the freedom to choose who he will associate with, who will be his people, who will bear his name metaphysically and ontologically, who will be the glorified saints of God and who will not. And so Arminian theology strikes at the very heart of that, that God doesn't have the right to tell anyone that they won't be his people. And so if if God is to be a just God on Arminianism, he, he has to give everybody the equal opportunity to be his people. And, and we just don't recognize that anywhere else in the world that that is what's required to be fair. If I invite right. if i invite one person to a party and i don't invite everybody to the party we don't we don't suddenly say well that's a fundamentally unjust unjust principle we recognize that as relatively autonomous beings we have a right to choose who we wish to associate with and who we choose not to associate with and so why we would rob god of that in order to somehow well here's the answer we rob god of that in order to make ourselves the autonomous center of reality Whereas reformed theology has always articulated that God is the only autonomous central reality and everything else, including who will be saved and who will not is ordered around him and his glory. And he has a right to choose that. Right. And there's this issue as well. I think as Perkins establishes that it's not just, it is of course, mainly about the sovereignty of God, but also he connects that with why, in a sense, do you think that God would do it this way? And that is, it's to demonstrate his glory. Because exactly. I've heard a lesser Arminian argument that says something to the extent of, well, I'm not debating that God is sovereign. In fact, he is actually sovereign over human destiny and fate. But he holds that sovereignty in abeyance so that he allows the human beings to choose whether or not to accept him. The problem with that, besides being illogical, is that what it, it breaks is if God in if God's greatest goal, essentially, so to speak, is the manifestation of his glory, and the way that he manifests that glory is in his autonomy, then he would, by his own right, demonstrate that in the most profound sense, which is to show that his autonomy means that he can set the fate of human beings. Right. So God is returning glory to himself by way of mercy to the elect and justice to the reprobate. And so it's consistent with his character and therefore logically inconsistent that he would hold that in abeyance because by doing that, it actually demonstrates less of his glory rather than more of it. Yeah. And so I think Perkins just does a really good job of drawing us into, by way of his preaching, this reality. And then he layers on top of that this sense where he's like, listen, you may have been taught that this was a bad thing. This is love. Yeah. Reprobation, even itself, lovingly urges the elect to seek further exercise of grace and to make their calling of election sure in Christ to test yourselves. And for the ungodly, it moves them to examine themselves for marks of election. So I think part of what we're experiencing in our contemporary culture with respect to preaching in the evangelical sphere is a lack of understanding reprobation as something that is loving. And to your point, we just don't operate this way in any other place in life. We, yeah. we, want, we want this kind of God who is in control of all things, especially our eternal destiny. But, I mean, I'm trying to think of other examples now that just 
escaping me, but your example of like the party thing is, is really right on. And, and where do we get that sense of justice from? Where do we get the sense that like uh, that autonomous decision is not of its own nature yeah. reflective of injustice? Yeah. And you know, the other example that I can think of is, um, you know, I'm a manager and uh, one of the tasks that I've been delegated by the institution that pays me is to make hiring decisions about who will work in my section. And so the first step of that is, you know, I get I get a pool of candidates and I look at the candidates and I make a decision about who's going to come in to do an interview and who I'm probably not even going to send an email to to say that I'm not considering them. Like, honestly, you get so many candidates, you can't even email them all sometimes. And so I make a decision to bring someone in for interview that is me exercising the uh, sovereignty that has been delegated to me by my employer to make decisions about who will be an employee and who will not. And so right. so for me to just be like, well, uh, I'm actually going to let the candidates decide whether they work here uh, because I'm so I'm so loving and so generous that I'm going to bring all the candidates in and I'm going to tell them, well, if you want to work here, that's up to you. I'm not going to I'm not going to make the decision for you. I would be a terrible manager at that point. Like I would be a bad manager. I would be abusing the authority that I have by, by neglecting to exercise it. And in a certain sense, you know, the, the Arminian position wants to, on one hand say, God is so loving that he offers everybody a chance to come to salvation, but he's not quite loving enough to actually save everyone. Right. So, you know, it's funny because people will talk about like, oh, well, God's a gentleman. He's not going to force himself on you. And that that's fine. And that works fine when you when you picture the relationship here as one of a romantic interaction. But in reality, if I was walking down the street and I was coming up to a bridge and there was a person who was about to jump off the bridge and I grabbed them and I held them tight and I prevented them from jumping off the bridge, no one is going to tell me that I violated their freedom and that I was actually hateful by forcing them not to kill themselves. They would look at that right. and and they would probably say, you know, that's a heroic act because you've exactly. saved a person's life. It doesn't matter that you've acted against their will. Now, maybe in our current political environment and our current um, sort of medical ethics environment, there might actually be some question about that. But everybody knows, like when you stop someone from taking their own life, you are you are imposing your will on them and you are violating their will. You are inhibiting their freedom. And everybody is just fine with that. But all of a sudden, when we come to these matters of eternal suicide, which is what damnation is, we choose to uh, we choose to resist the life that is offered to us in the gospel. We choose to spit in the face of the author of life himself, and we choose to plummet to our own destruction by our own choices. Well, God stops some of us from doing that. And rather than look at that and go, well, he violated your will. You know, he's not fair. He didn't save everybody. We should look at that and say, it is the supreme act of grace that he has saved anybody. And even more so now, if you imagine that scenario with me walking up to the bridge and it was actually someone who just murdered my wife and I still went to the extra step of saving them from their own their own suicidal tendencies, people would look at that and say, man, this person, this must really be an act of someone who loves life and wants this person to live because he, he right overlooked and he overcame a grievous sin against him and still acted in this person's best interest. And Arminian theology, and, and, you know, I didn't really think that this was going to turn into like an anti-Arminian episode, but I guess I maybe should have anticipated it. 
Perkins brings out the fact that God's act in overcoming the will of the sinners, that that not only is an act of grace and love that we should be thankful for, but it's something that should give the elect great assurance. Because as yes. I said earlier, it's not just that uh, it's not just that no one can snatch us out of the hand of Christ, but no one could have stopped Christ from taking hold of us in the first place. And that should give us assurance that if we are in Christ, we are in Christ indeed, and we will never not be in Christ. I think that's actually a really like legitimately a really good segue into, I think, a good way to wrap up our conversation with Perkins. And that's in this other theme that he really made central to all of his preaching. And that was effectual calling and faith. Yes. And I want to talk about this briefly because I think in this chapter, there was so much that stirred my heart toward encouragement in what Perkins represented here. And so I want to share a quote from page 162. So in the words of Perkins, the preaching of the word accomplishes two things. And here's the quote. The law showing a man his sin and punishment thereof, which is eternal death, and the gospel showing salvation by Christ Jesus to such as believe. And so here's this wonderful idea, like we've talked about so many times, how do we bridge, or how do we come together with and coalesce the, the law in the gospel? The law, basically saying is it wounds, it cuts, it hurts, it's deep, it pains us. And the gospel is this wonderful salve, which binds up, which heals. And yeah. so the product of effectual calling is saving faith, which Perkins defines, again on 162, as a miraculous and supernatural faculty of the heart, apprehending Christ Jesus, being applied by the operation of the Holy Ghost and receiving it to itself. Yeah. And so I love this because this is great clarification. Here is great preaching because it's clarifying for us that the object of faith is not the sinner. It's not his experience. It's not faith itself. It is in Christ Jesus alone. And it does not even have to be big, strong faith because it's not about the size of the faith itself. This is sounding weird now, but it's about the one in whom we are trusting about the, the yeah. obedience in the person of Jesus Christ. Yes. Yeah. And you know, this, this is something that has been a repeated theme on our show is the relationship between faith and sanctification and repentance. And one of the things that I don't think you can get out of this chapter and not recognize is that for Perkins, faith is entirely something that is given to the sinner by God. And, and repentance is something that is also given to the sinner by God, but it's also something that the sinner does. But for Perkins, right. faith is not something that the sinner does. Faith is something that the sinner receives, and then that medium or that instrument is used by God to deliver or to bring about salvation. And so, you know, Perkins has um, this, this golden chain, right? When we think about the concept of a reformed ordo salutis, what we really are thinking about is developed by Perkins. Now, it's not as though no one had talked about like the logical relationships between the steps or phases of relationship uh, of of uh, salvation before. But Perkins and I have with me the um, the works of William Perkins, volume six, which was edited by Dr. Beakey, uh, published by Reformation Heritage Books. And they have a full um, uh, like a 11 uh, by 17 inch legal size replicate of his uh golden chain and what's interesting is you have if you look you can look up this diagram online repentance is way down on the ordo salutis so you know you and i have kind of come down that 
repentance and faith are kind of flip sides of the same coin and justification right. is kind of the edge of that coin right so you have faith on one side justification is sort of happens logically between them and then repentance happens immediately on the other side but if you look at it um perkins has effectual preaching and hearing the mollifying of the heart faith which all falls under effectual calling and then he has remission of sin imputation of righteousness which falls under justification and then he has mortification and vivification which falls under sanctification and he subdivides vivification to include repentance so repentance not only is not prior to justification it's actually sort of on the tail end of sanctification logically speaking because you have to die to sin in order to come alive to Christ in in sanctification and repentance actually comes at the very end of the sanctification concept in the Ordo Salutis for Perkins. And this is, this is why it's important, is that for Perkins, he was very keen to make sure that justification, the, the reception of Christ's righteousness by the, the redeemed sinner, is absolutely, utterly an act of God and not in any sense an act of the person being redeemed. And so Amen. that's part of why he uh, highlights and lands on predestination so firmly is because, you know, from the very beginning of our, of our salvation, which began in eternity past when God predestined us in Christ before the foundation of the world for unity and communion with Christ that unfolds in time in Christ taking, taking responsibility and making sure that we become united to him through faith. And in that union, that's where justification occurs. But then after that union has occurred, logically speaking, not necessarily temporally, after that union has occurred and justification has taken place, then we come to life in Christ. And that's when we repent. We repent as new life sinners, as in those who have received new life, that's when we repent. Not prior to union with Christ, not prior to justification, but after we have already been made alive in Christ is when we repent, logically speaking. And Perkins, you can't underemphasize that point. And here's why I think it's crucial for us to understand is because in the Reformed tradition, right, there are those in the Reformed tradition, when I say that this is the Reformed position, I don't mean that there's never been anybody within the Reformed tradition who's held a different view. But within the Reformed tradition, repentance has been placed within sanctification consistently in order to preserve the utter monergism that happens in justification. Because if we as a, as a creature repent and that in some sense causes or contributes to our justification, then justification is no longer monergistic. And now justification right. has become a shared work between God and the creature. Now, sanctification is not necessarily a shared work between God and the creature. And that's why I think it's really important. That's why this, this chart that Perkins has is so interesting is that Although repentance is attached to vivification for him, and he, he divi defines uh, sanctification as sort of the combination of mortification and vivification, repentance is attached to that, but it doesn't actually fall under that category. So he subdivides repentance out 
not as part of sanctification, but as a consequence of sanctification. And I think that that's so right. important because our assurance is in the acts of Christ, not in what he uh, what he enables us to do, not in the good works that are wrought out of our sanctification, but in the fact that in Christ we are justified and sanctified. We know for sure that we'll be glorified. And because of all those things, these good works, including repentance, naturally and necessarily flow out of it. And here again, you see that great comfort and joy that is both biblical and pastoral as Perkins represents them, because how many times have, I mean, how many times have you heard of people being told things like, you know what? The reason why you're sick is because you don't have enough faith. The reason why things are awful in your life is because you don't have enough faith. The reason why God is far from you is because you don't have the right kind of faith. Yeah. And here what he's saying is that even the person who sense that they lack faith, you should go to the one from whom the faith comes itself and trust in that person, knowing that you do not have to manufacture something. You don't have to es- elevate and escalate your feelings to some kind of degree of emotionalism so that you have a sense that you are actually in faith, but that's being in Christ and Christ providing that faith by his gift through the cross, through the Holy Spirit. I love that he, he throws in this quote from Charles Munson with respect to faith and how uh, Perkins saw it by saying, this is on page 162 as well, which is apparently just an amazing page. So if you're <laughs> looking for a good page in the chapter, go to 162. Munson says, faith then saves the elect, not because it is a perfect virtue, but because it apprehends a perfect object, yeah. which is the obedience of Christ. Whether faith is weak or strong does not matter for salvation rests on God's mercy and promises. That just floors me because it it draws me to my knees to say, God, you are so great that you would see not only this amazing weakness in all of humanity that you would condescend to the giving of your son to come and be like us, but that you yourself would be the one that would give us the thing that we could not create and manufacture on our own and then sustain that very thing to the end without exception. And so it's that, that faith being given in an irrevocable sense. And so this is the great value of Perkins preaching because it seems like on the face that there's what we've talked about here can come into this realm of, well, it's just a lot of complicated theology. And at the end of the day, it's really not. It's that God is sovereign and in control, that he is the progenitor of faith and that he holds us in his hand until the very end. And so Perkins understood that and preached that because he was rooted in this theology in a deep way. And when we rip up those roots or when we have shallow roots, what we inevitably get is shallow preaching, which leads to shallow living, confusion, fear, disregard for God. And yeah. we have so much of that in our, in our just modern culture. You know, incidentally, if you want to do something really super cool, and this came to my mind as you we were talking about the, the, the golden chain, which is referenced in this particular chapter, you can actually go to puritanpublications.com. And why wouldn't you? So let me just say it this way you should go to puritanpublications.com. <laughs> and one of the things you can do once you're there is you can actually order a print of this golden chain, or at least like you said, go and check it out. Go find the image for this because it's exceptional. And this particular image is how Perkins at least understood what the kind of the course or the causes of salvation and damnation according to God's word. It's a really incredible graphic, right? I mean, if yeah. you have it in front of you, it's, it's not... It's not uh, simple in the sense that, like, you'll see if you look it up, it's really elaborate, it's really thought-provoking, and you can buy for $19, with tax included, evidently, an 11 by 17 professionally printed version of this from puritanpublications.com. I actually just think this would be an amazing thing to have, honestly, like, framed in your living room. 
because yeah. it would always be this kind of thought provoking thing that would always be before your eyes thinking about, we just fail to appreciate how exceptional it is that God has saved us. Yeah. How exceptional his power is as it's manifested in his autonomous control over predestination. And this chart at least grows my heart to come to appreciate it in a little bit different way. Yeah. I'll tell you what, Jesse, the next time we're in New Jersey for vacation, uh, we're going to go and we're going to get matching tattoos of Perkins <laughs> causes and order of salvation on our back, like all the way down our back. Cause that's the only place you could fit it. Right. Know, Cause we're yeah. talking about a huge chart. Yeah. It's, it's, it's hard to read. Like a lot of the stuff you find online, it, it's hard to read. And you know, th this is really what it all comes down to with Perkins. Um, I'm going to string a couple quotes together here. Um, so on page 172, Beaky says that this is a summary of Perkins uh, theology of preaching. He says in the hands of the Holy spirit, the preacher is an instrument for the execution of the divine decree of election. And then he goes on to say that this is how Perkins summarized the task of a preacher. And then, you know, who is that instrument of and how to be that instrument? He says this, this is Perkins. This is the sum of the sum. So like the ultimate summary, preach one Christ by Christ to the praise of Christ. And if you do that, Amen. according to preach, according to Perkins, that preaching will be efficacious to bring about the salvation of the elect, because God has empowered you as a duly ordained minister of the word to be that instrument of the Holy Spirit. And when that instrument of the Holy Spirit preaches Christ by Christ to the praise of Christ, that preaching is effectual unto salvation in a way that nothing else can be. That's beautiful. I mean... Yeah. Like you said earlier, it almost goes back to this idea of just simply preaching the scriptures. Yep. And yet one of the things that's been a common theme that we've talked about is this proclivity to want to try to adorn the scriptures when yeah. it comes to actual preaching in the proclamation of the scriptures on the Lord's day is somehow trying to feel like we need to dress them up to make them a little bit more entertaining, to have something clever and witty to come up with a really good mental hook. And what you have here is decidedly, and unashamedly, Perkins saying, you don't need any of that stuff. In yeah. fact, when you bring that stuff in, you're actually less efficacious. There is almost a downward spiral. The more you add to it, the less beautiful, the less transforming it is. It's, it's almost like I'm trying to think of like something perfect. Like consider, you know, just like a really good hamburger. Like a really good hamburger doesn't need like any of the trappings. You know what I'm talking about? Like really good beef, simply yeah. seasoned with just like salt, a little bit of salt and pepper. Like any good chef would be like, don't touch that jam. Leave yeah. that by itself. It's exactly perfect as is. You'll actually det detract from the amazing, beautiful flavor that's represented yeah. in that meat. And, and it's kind of, I think, part of what he's saying here is like, let the meat be the meat. Yeah. And just devour it, hunger after it. Go after that, that pure beautiful burger man my mouth is watering <laughs> i'm so i'm so hungry hey on a quick side note i was speaking of burgers and meat and i'm not sure this might just undermine everything i just said in terms of using that as a metaphor i was i, I participated in a 5k last evening and at the end of it they had like a little buffet for the runners yeah and this is at a fairly nice restaurant actually and they had meatballs. And so I grabbed some meatballs because meatballs are delicious. And they were made with gluten-free breadcrumbs. Oh, which nice. Is, you know, Hard to find. Yeah, that's my style. Yeah, that's my style right there. So I was like, great restaurant. They look delicious. I'm eating them. 
And then my wife says to me, hey, just so you know, there's actually, that's not meat at all. And I was like, what? And it was like the impossible burger thing. And I, I have to tell you, I couldn't believe, if nobody had said anything to me, I would have thought it was straight up meat. You know who I bet eats those fake, stupid, sissy, meatless burgers? Todd from the Average Everyday Worship Podcast. <laughs> I bet you he's a fake meat, a fake meat burger person. Oh, this is this is so great. What are, what are the chances we can get Todd to come on this podcast? Uh, we we could probably get him to come on the podcast, but I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. <laughs> he owes he owes me and Ashley and you and the entire state of New Hampshire an apology. Uh, that's that's so great. It's true. I hope that. Todd, just apologize. I think you realize that you're in the wrong. It, at first, it was just an innocent mistake. And so we love you as a brother. We accept you in that, right? But clearly, there is a conviction. I mean, I can feel it for you. Yeah. And that is, you just need to apologize about this at this point. That That's the only thing that can bring like a full restoration here. Yeah, if, if you as a listener happen to know what church Todd goes to or is employed at, <laughs> I'd really like to get in touch with his elders. Um, we need to talk about the Ninth Commandment. Uh so there's that. Oh, this is great. Well, this has been another <laughs> lovely, another lovely book cast. Yes. And I hope that like for people that are tracking with us, I think there might be, and I say this because when I listen to podcasts, this sometimes pops like in the back of my mind. So know that when I say this, I'm just like everybody else. When you're listening to a podcast or you, you subscribe to a podcast that you love and you see like they do this kind of like regular thing, like a book cast or like a book review, for instance, that could be one of the times you're like, oh, I'm just going to skip it because it's probably not that interesting or they're just talking about something I haven't even read. I hope that if people are listening to this, they've gotten this far, that they're realizing this is the joy of reading something together with somebody because it spurs all this beautiful conversation yeah. that's around the center of what's being written about. And so I just, that's why I love reading this stuff with you. And I encourage everybody else to jump into their own little type of book club, because it's not just about like regurgitating what you read, but really trying to understand what you are reading. Right. And then from that, getting all this wonderful topic that surrounds it. Yeah. So what a great time that we could start with William Perkins and get into super life Syrianism and double predestination and talk about effectual call, all these things. I mean, this is why I read. This is great because it challenges me, yeah. transforms my life, and the Lord uses it. He certainly blesses it. So I hope people are feeling blessed just by hearing our you know, lame little voices going back and forth on this. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's funny because you say like sometimes you think uh, that like these repeated series, people think they're not interesting. And all I could think of was the line out of Avengers where the Hulk looks at the camera and he goes, that's my secret cap. I'm always angry. And all I could think is that's my secret, Jesse. <laughs> I'm never interesting. <laughs> I'm okay with that, though. Oh, well done. If nothing else, I'm always impressed with your ability to draw from popular culture, especially the Marvel Universe, and bring it in. Just bring it home. I appreciate yeah. that about you. I try. Well, until next time, Jesse, honor everyone. Love the Brotherhood. <laughs>